You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 255 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. The last two weeks episodes were part of a little mind trilogy I decided to do. The first one was called the mind of data, the second was called the mind of plants and now in this final episode we are looking at the mind of the universe. And in this episode I'm joined by author Christopher M. Bach, PhD. And we will be discussing his new book, LSD and the Mind of the Universe. So thanks for being on the podcast. It's an honor to be here with you, Alex. So can you tell the listeners a bit about who you are? Well, my background is, uh, well, first I'm a retired professor of religious studies. I've been teaching in uh, Ohio for my entire career, 33 years. Uh, my background is in religious studies. I was trained as a philosopher of religion. So during my day job, I was, you know, traditional kind of academic working in religious studies. Uh, and But in my nighttime job, I basically began in 1979 a 20-year journey of working with high doses of LSD using protocols uh, developed by Stanislav Grof. Uh, to explore my consciousness and through that process to explore uh, ultimately the mind of the universe itself. So that's just kind of a, my starting point. And I've written the story of that journey in a book that's coming out this month called LSD and the Mind of the Universe, Diamonds from Heaven. These protocols by Stanislav Grof, Briefly, what, what are those? Well, basically, all of these sessions were done uh, in complete isolation from the outside world, no contact with the outside world, it's a no, no discussion with friends, uh, it wasn't tripping. So every day that I did a session, I was working at home or in my wife's office, I was lying down, I was, had my eyes covered with eye shades, uh, headphones, uh, listening to a very carefully curated list uh, of music that was selected to pace the stages of the unfolding, the peak hours, and the slow uh, decline or ending of the psychedelic session. I worked with very high doses of LSD during this time. I worked at 500 to 600 micrograms. This is a, a procedure which I really wouldn't recommend now that I've gotten to the end of it and looking back and kind of assessing the entire process. I really wouldn't recommend doing this, doing what I did, but this is what I did. A normal person who do, goes to Burning Man to trip on LSD, what would be the comparison? I don't know. Uh, I've never been to Burning Man, and so I'm really not sure kind of what people's practices are. And, uh, of course... I always worked very hard. I mean, I never used street LSD. I worked very hard to get pharmaceutical grade uh, LSD. What what you get on the street may be anywhere from 50 to 100 or 125 uh, micrograms uh, per tab. Uh, 500 to 600 micrograms is pushing the limits of what the bodies uh, can absorb which means that you can take more than that, but you don't get 
higher necessarily. It, you, so 500 to 600 micrograms is is a very is a very high dose of LSD. Did the way you did the set and setting and everything and the music did that develop over many many ceremonies or was it like that from the beginning? It was like that from the beginning, at least after the first three sessions. I actually started, and it's a protocol that's outlined in Stan's book, uh, LSD Psychotherapy. So I basically learned the protocol from him. He worked in, he developed two protocols, and he and his colleagues. One was low-dose psycholytic therapy, working anywhere approximately maybe 200 micrograms up to 200 micrograms and high dose psychedelic therapy um, working at 500 plus micrograms. Uh, That latter protocol was developed at Spring Grove Hospital where they were working with terminally ill cancer patients, people who were really on their way out. Uh, They were going to die and they were trying to trigger something approximating a, uh, a near-death episode to give them a, an experience of where they were going when they died in order to uh, address um, death anxiety. So what I did after three lower-dose sessions, I decided to work with high doses at the psychedelic protocol and I thought that if it could be done safely three times, well then it could be done safely more than three times. And what I found was that while it could be done safely more than three times, it pushed my edges harder than I had expected and it took all my resources to navigate uh, what unfolded in a journey that was this deep and went on for this long. Did you have any experience of psychedelics before you started these uh trials? No, this is kind of where I I kind of jumped in. Well, I should also mention, of course, that I I had a sitter with me, the same sitter for all of my sessions, a clinical psychologist. Uh, So I would never undertake work like this on my own uh, or not with a, you know, a professional to sort of just be my my anchor and my safety line. So if you didn't have any experience, previous experience was the first time you did it in this kind of uh, setting and that kind of strength was that uh, very overpowering well i started at 200 240 micrograms for three sessions uh, so i kind of phased into it but when i entered when i jumped into working with higher doses yeah initially it was quite overwhelming uh, I had one particular session that was, uh, which I describe in the book, which was uh, very strong and jarring. But once I got my feet wet in it, I learned what to expect, and I prepared myself in order to handle the very aggressive dismantling of your ego and the very intense uh, purification and death rebirth processes that uh, this protocol triggers. How long did you wait before each of these sessions? Um, On average, when I look at the whole pattern, I did about five sessions a year. What I did was I worked for four years, and then I stopped for six years, and then I resumed and worked for uh, a very aggressive 10 years. So I worked 20 years total, but four and then 10 years. 
and I averaged about five sessions a year. So I had, you know, a couple of months to take detailed. First, I would always take very detailed notes within 24 hours of every session. And I had two months to process my experience and to think about it and integrate it before going into another session. Did you have to do all this undercover, uh, considering your job and position? I did. This was, I mean, this was after psychedelics had been made illegal in 1970 in my country. So I started this work in 1979. Um, I just felt a very, very strong calling to do this work. But in order to do it, I had to divide my life. So I divided my life between my uh, conventional side, my academic side, and then this secret circle I entered um, doing this um, shamanic work. Uh, and that that silence over the long term became increasingly burdensome the longer I went. And I discuss this in the book, what I call the sickness of silence, the challenge of working with psychedelics in a culture which is psychedelic phobic, or at least psych- or psychedelic hostile, or simply psychedelic uh, naive. On uh, February 20th next year, uh, these people uh, are organizing online a global coming out campaign for people who use uh, psychedelics as uh, a sort of medicine or in a positive way. So maybe that's one step in the right direction. I think so. I think it is a good step. Now, it's just amazing, you know, we've entered into this new psychedelic renaissance, the renaissance of psychedelic research. Uh, I never imagined when I was doing this work and all the years I was doing this work that we would be in such a um, uh, receptive, um, there would be such a receptive audience to this now, but things are changing very quickly. One reason I was interested in talking to you is because I've mainly in my life worked with uh, ayahuasca, which um, uh, when you do ayahuasca ceremonies, you it's very common to experience that you you uh, there is some sort of intelligence there or some other uh, mind. If that's from yourself or not, who knows? But there is a voice there anyway. And I, I, a year or so ago, I tried LSD only mainly because I wanted to just have tried it because of its uh, significance in our history. Uh, but I, I didn't like it so much because I didn't sense there was a voice there. Now I, I didn't do, uh, I did it in the similar setting as you did, but maybe it wasn't as strong. But I only tried it uh, twice, and uh, I didn't do it dedicated like you did but uh, so I wanted to know did you experience uh, a voice or an, an other or something that wasn't you in this in the in your experiences yes I did um, ayahuasca is beautiful medicine um, I have some experience with it and you're you're right that there is an acute sense of kind of engaging Uh, a living intelligence that kind of goes right into your heart and, and enters deep into your into a dialogue with it. My experience with LSD is that something similar happens. Um, just it's a different kind of psychedelic, and therefore the 
engagement is a bit different. But yes, overall, I, I found myself entering into deeper and deeper levels of engagement and eventually communion with, now how do we describe it? I call it the creative intelligence of the universe, the mind of the universe. Um, it never took a particular shape. It never took a form. It never took a particular you know, identity as such. Uh, and I think that it's partly because, at least in the way that I worked, I went through a series, not one death, uh, you know, death of ego is usually the first death one undergoes, but I went through a series of deaths as I entered deeper levels of the universe. And so the, the nature of one's experience changes as one goes deeper. Generally, mainstream science argues that any psychedelic um You know, changes the mind so it perceives things differently and that's the logical conclusion and maybe it's like that but if it is like that then the mind uh, is uh, extremely mystical and mysterious because it's much bigger than we could even imagine um, so that's one angle and then the other angle is that somehow when you do the psychedelics you I don't know, you open a portal or you connect with something that is outside of you. Which uh, path or if any other path maybe do you subscribe to? Well, I understand our modern culture's belief that uh, our mind is ultimately private, isolated from other minds and that underneath our conscious awareness is a personal unconscious My experience is different than that. Uh, my sense is that, yes, in the early stages, you are engaging levels of your personal unconscious. But if you continue, if you work and clean and clean and purify as you enter deeper and deeper, eventually you drop into dimensions of consciousness which are deeper than your personal unconscious. You drop into what Carl Jung, the psychiatrist, called the collective unconscious, and you enter into dimensions of the species mind. And if you keep on going, you can drop beyond deeper even than the species mind into deeper dimensions of consciousness that uh, transcend time and space, uh, deeper dimensions of consciousness that seem to be part of the fabric of the living intelligence of the universe itself. So I guess you'd have to put me in that category. But it's a subtle dance between the mind which is doing the exploring and the larger mind which is being explored. The way I understand this over reflecting over my years of experience is this, that our, our personal mind or the mind we start with uh, acts as a seed catalyst which catalyzes, well, let me step back. The larger mind is a mind of an infinite ocean of possibilities. And the mind we drop into that ocean acts as a catalyst that crystallizes a set of experiences out of its infinite potential. As these experiences change us, as they impact us, as they heal us, and as they purify us, the mind that we drop into this infinite ocean in later sessions catalyzes a deeper set of experiences out of the um, out of its potential so that there is a subtle participatory quality 
to the experience. But this doesn't mean that we're simply experiencing the projection of our personal psyche. I think it's a, we're genuinely entering into communion with a deeper consciousness, but this communion is not simply dissolving self and then entering into an objectively independent of us conscious reality, but rather there is a, a conversation, a communion between the mind exploring and the mind which is being explored. Sometimes when I've had my most grand visionary experiences, when you see the vastness of the universe or eternity, it can be a quite uh, it can be quite a frightening experience because it's so huge. Uh, have you ever been in that position? Yes, when one if you if you work in a a measured and disciplined fashion, one enters into those experiences with a certain kind of rigor. And so you enter in step by step and you kind of have time to adjust to them and it is less frightening. But there are times when you're confronting a, a jump into a sort of a quantum jump into a deeper level of consciousness, it's quite frightening. And when one enters deep into the depth of surrender and the death rebirth process it's it's can be extremely frightening and you think it feels like you're losing your mind it feels like you're totally dying uh, it, it requires complete surrender to navigate this well uh, and it it takes courage uh, to surrender that deeply everybody who uses psychedelics in a serious fashion they know that Yeah, surrender is usually the solution if you if you freak out or get scared or so but what what were your your techniques to to achieve this surrender because it's it's not as easy as it sounds when you're in the in that moment no you're quite right it's not easy is it i think this is one of the perhaps the greatest gift i received from stanislav grof and his research which is it was because of his his work was based upon his early work with LSD that I chose to work with that substance I mean you have to think back to 1979 this was before ayahuasca had emerged uh, as the very powerful force that it is in our cultures now uh, but what I learned from Stan Groff's work <clears throat> is that is to trust the process if we completely surrender and let the process carry us where it will go, where it wants to take us. It will take us into places that are sometimes, first, extremely painful, physically, psychologically, very confusing, very disorienting. We don't know what's going on. But if we trust the process, if we completely surrender to it, it will come into a breaking, it'll come to a breaking point and we will experience some type of death and then wake up in a different reality and as a different being because we literally are becoming a different being who a being who can do things our normal self could never do so i don't have a trick for this it's basically just a process of learning to trust learning to surrender so you surrender again and again and uh The more you surrender, the more you practice the skill of surrender. 
and allowing yourself to be dissolved in order to um, inherit the opportunity uh, to experience these the great depth of existence. When you are having these experiences, are you uh, finding it easy to remember them the next day, or do, do they do you forget them quickly, or you have to write it down as fast as you wake up? Well, I think that's one of the advantages of working with lower doses or with gentler psychedelics, like psilocybin would be an example of a gentler psychedelic. <clears throat> when you work with something, a powerful psychedelic like uh, LSD, and particularly if you work with very high doses, accurate recall uh, can be very challenging. I remember the first time uh, in the 11th session when I broke through time and I entered what I experienced, uh, what I call deep time. Uh, I experienced the whole of my life from start to finish, all of its time moments as a simultaneously present now. So I, I didn't just see it, I experienced the being that I was in the process of becoming, but also the being that I had become in the course of my lifetime. And this was such, it was a dramatically moving experience. But after the session, I had a great deal of difficulty remembering it, recalling it. Um, but what I found is first by making as careful a record, even with the gaps in the experience, really trying to get down everything that you experienced, everything you can remember. When I went back into the same state of consciousness next time and the time after that and the time after that, I basically was able to remember more and more and was able to stabilize my consciousness at that deep level of reality. So uh, this, I think, is an important epistemological point. Uh, in this case, I learned how to stay awake inside deep time. Then later, when I broke into still deeper levels of reality, this process repeated itself. When you first break into new territory, it's extremely disorienting, extremely challenging. But with practice and persistence, you can become, you can stabilize, you can learn how to stabilize your consciousness at that new level. And partly it involves undergoing uh, deep purifications uh, because my experience is that every level into a deeper level of consciousness is entry into a higher state of energy. So deep states of consciousness are higher states of energy. So to improve recall, I developed a strategy. I always re write up my session the day after a session. And after a session, the day after, you know, you're kind of a little porous around the edges, but your verbal functions are back. So when I would write up my session, I would use headphones again, and I would play the music that I had listened to inside the session in exactly the same order in which I had listened to it in the session. And I'd play a piece of music over and over again until I felt that I had captured the experiences that I had with that music, and then I would go on to the next piece of music. I found that by entering the by re-entering the edges of my experience in that way i my recall improved and i was able to get the experience down more accurately when you drink ayahuasca you can have a very visual and spectacular experience but sometimes and it's quite common you can also have an experience that's not very visual 
but it's all about your own life, a life review, looking at uh, past events and more like thinking about your own life and then realizing insights and then the next day you try and change those things you noticed were that you did wrong in the past. Did you have those kind of experiences also? Yes. Yes, very much so. When you open up into deep states of awareness, there are all all sorts of ways in which, you know, you experience things you've been doing that you could have been doing differently, that you could be doing better, areas where you I've actually was given repeatedly different specific practices, different psychological exercises or different meditation practices. Uh in order to strengthen this or to soften that in the process. Yeah, that's one of the great values of entering these states, aren't they? That they can kind of guide you uh, into living a, a, a deeper and more satisfying life. Even if we're in a psychedelic renaissance now, when you consider the mainstream population or average Joe, it's still a secret. And I find it amazing that you know, the first time I, I had my ayahuasca ceremony and I'd never done anything like that before, um, I felt like I wanted to call CNN and have breaking news about what I experienced because I could not I could not believe it. I was a, a cynical, uh, hardcore atheist when I did ayahuasca and it completely changed everything for me in like one in five hours. And uh, why do you think it's still kind of a secret amongst normal people? And what's so, I mean, I don't know why it's not like mainstream, like water. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think if we look at our larger uh, intellectual and cultural history, we went through Uh, a transformation in the age of enlightenment where we moved decidedly away from religion and away from a theological worldview into a worldview of pure reason and then into reason refined by the scientific method. And we went through a process in which we began to not only embrace the discipline of empirical research, but we came to believe that Anything which we could not study with empirical research uh, didn't really exist, that it was just a projection of our imagination. And we, we kind of merged the critical scientific method with a particular metaphysical worldview which said matter is the only thing that exists. And we can explain everything ultimately by simply analyzing matter. And I think we're outgrowing that. I think we're outgrowing the metaphysical, that particular position. But that's that's kind of where, that's our intellectual background as psychedelics have re-entered our culture. Uh, I, too, was very atheistically inclined when I started this work, even though I had a, a PhD in, in philosophy of religion. All of my graduate school and undergraduate work had left me basically as an atheistically inclined agnostic, well-versed in the decline of, of spirituality and religion in the modern mind. So I began, too, deeply, deeply skeptical of uh, the existence of spiritual reality. But that, of course, changed very quickly once you start to have your own experiences of this reality. I've always been interested in 
religion, uh, all different kinds of religion, even when I was an atheist, I find them interesting for different reasons. But I have discovered that since I started working with psychedelics over 10 years ago, I've rediscovered all religions and I can read those uh, texts. It doesn't matter which religion. I can read them all liberated from the politics of whoever wrote those books and I can I somehow can connect with the essence of, of each religion and uh, I'm free f- when you t- when, and then when I talk about these religions to other people who are not like that they always bring up the negative things about those religions whichever it is but um, it doesn't affect my view of it it's, I don't know if you've had this experience it's, uh, similarly, I, I taught basically um, introduction to world religions uh, for decades at the university. I've taught introduction to Eastern religions, uh, courses in comparative mysticism, uh, courses in what, transpersonal psychology of religion. So I've been deeply influenced by Houston Smith and the perennial philosophy tradition that basically identifies a a pretty consistent core, an overlapping set of insights uh, that seem to run through uh, various religions. But there are, of course, not only are there perennial truths that run through all religions, there are also perennial falsehoods that run through all religions of any historical era. I think two of the perennial falsehoods that run in the religions of the last 4,000 years is the uh, their failure to completely integrate women into their theology. It's a patriarchal system and a failure to really develop a, a deep, adequate understanding of nature. All of these traditions are up and out cosmologies. You, the idea is you achieve enlightenment or you achieve salvation and then you leave the physical universe and you enter into a, a privileged state which is outside physical reality and physical reality does not participate in the uh, salvation or in the um, the enlightened condition and that is not I, I understand that position I understand the history of it but I don't think that's an adequate understanding of um, where we are and where we're going yes I agree like so if I would read a, a Bi- the Bible for instance and I come across the word father I read father, but I'm, I'm not thinking father. I mean, I'm, I, I am aware that those people who wrote, they used the term father, but it's really relevant what you, what gender you call it, you know. And also when you look at indigenous cultures, there is less of that. And there's, that's why I've uh, uh, investigated so much indigenous cultures because they do incorporate nature more and they do have more of the female uh, the goddess concept more. Yeah, the theme of the divine feminine has been a strong recurring theme in my work, uh, the, the theme of the great mother, the theme of actually uh, the entire physical universe being a manifestation of, in a sense, a feminine creative process. been very strong in my work. And you're right, indigenous cultures do tend to recognize and appreciate the divine feminine more strongly it is quite logical when you think about it because usually in alchemy you have this as above so below and you know a 
a galaxy looks very similar to a uh, a shell or or the eye how the patterns i mean the small is very similar to the large and uh, the, the mother is the one who gives birth so it would only be logical if there was some sort of thing that we all came from it's probably be of that kind of archetype so have you had any sense or experience or thoughts about uh, the afterlife from your ex- from your sessions Yes, I uh, <clears throat> again, it's partly inherent in the the way I worked and what emerged, but I, I think about this, I will use the vocabulary that Buddhism uses kind of to describe it, uh, and they have the concept of the bardo, uh, the different dimensions that one enters when one dies in between incarnations, so there's a, a back and forth process. Well, let me back up. For me, reincarnation is a simple fact of life. Uh, and I accept this not on the grounds of faith and not even only on the grounds of my own experience, but on the grounds of the high quality of it and the, qu- the quantity of empirical evidence that exists for reincarnation today. There's just, I think, overwhelming evidence that reincarnation is simply true. The first book I wrote was on reincarnation. Uh, it's called Life Cycles, Reincarnation and the Web of Life. Um, and I wrote it because I, I had learned, I had encountered this evidence and I thought it was, it's a really important divide. You know, if you believe you live on earth only once or you believe you live on earth multiple times, it's like a dividing point in your philosophical options. Uh, so, I've had many experiences of going through uh, a psychological death process that seems to, um, I want to be careful here, to mimic or to actually reproduce the experience of physical death. Uh, It isn't physical death, but it's a profound psychological death that seems to parallel what happens in physical death. And there's a strong correlation between what the experiences of people who have deep near-death episodes, people who nearly die or who die and then come back to life, or let's say they nearly die, and what happens in psychedelic experiences. So I've had many experiences of dying, many experiences of entering deep into spiritual reality, uh, experiences which I would associate with different levels of the bardo, and experiences going beyond the bardo into what Buddhism calls extra samsaric reality, or going completely beyond the echoes of time and space, the echoes of cyclic reality, entering deep into uh, the domain that Buddhism would call dharmakaya, the clear light of absolute reality, I call the diamond luminosity. And the net effect of these experiences is First, just to completely dissolve all fear of death. I I have no fear of death. I'm not looking forward to the act of dying, but I have no fear whatsoever of where I'm going. I feel like I've touched it, and um, I have a sense of where I'm going, and I'm completely comfortable with it. In fact, not only do I not fear it, I'm deeply looking forward to it. I agree with your positions on what you just said, but I still want to see your view on this most common argument against reincarnation, which is that you hear often, 
that well there's more and more people so it's mathematically it doesn't make sense well that's that's a strong argument but only if you make two assumptions and we have no reasons to make those assumptions the assumptions is that the number of let's say souls the number of souls is uh, finite and small and that all the souls were present on earth in some early stage in the beginning then you have a problem logically explaining why we have uh, more people which require more souls but let me give a counterexample. Since I'm a, an academic, uh, I'll use an example from the university. Imagine that you were at a university that had 5,000 students and you lived on campus and you saw the students leaving and coming back semester by semester. But over the course of years, the university grew and that later there's 10,000 students. If you never left the university, you would be wondering where are all these students coming from? But of course, there is a much larger population outside the universe, uh, excuse me, outside the university where the students are coming from. We have, I think something like that is true for time and space as well. We have no reason to think that the number of souls is finite and no reason to think that all of them were present on earth in the very beginning. There might be a long line of souls waiting to participate in the physical incarnation experience as bodies become available in the evolutionary saga of our planet. Do you think that our uh, consensual reality is a sort of dream? S some people call it a simulation, it's very popular now that term, but in the older days it was also the theory that it was a dream. Well, yes and no, with no being the stronger answer, but let me explain why I think this. I've had the experience as I went deeper and deeper when I entered into what I would, as I have studied philosophy and Plato and different thinkers and Carl Jung, when I began to enter into what appeared to be archetypal reality, I had the repeated experience that when I would enter into these deep states of consciousness, I was entering a world that was more real than time and space. This was very disorienting. Uh, but nevertheless, over and over again, for years, when I would enter these states, I always had the experience of the reality that I was entering was more real than time-space reality. And that does give you a sense that if time and space is less real than these other dimensions, then one might think that time and space is an illusion. And there's certainly many aspects of time and space which are illusory. For example, uh, according to our what it looks like on time and space, when we die, we're gone, we disappear. Death is total elimination of our consciousness. That's not true. Uh, according to time and space, it looks like our minds are psychologically discrete atomistic units that we don't overlap with each other but when you go deeper you find out that while there are aspects of consciousness which are particular and and individual there are other aspects of consciousness deeper aspects of consciousness which are very open and interpenetrating and fluid between people so the way the world appears to simply the physical senses is not the way the world is in reality. 
I mean, we know this from science. Science is showing us all sorts of things which are true, but are not the way the world appears according to our physical senses. So in that respect, you could say that there is an illusory or a magical quality about our sensory experience of time and space, but I don't think it's an illusion in the sense of not real. Uh, it's that our experience of it is shallow, and we have to open, or we should, we gain if we open to include not only our physical experience, but a deeper experience of the consciousness of the universe, of our of the mind of the universe. From that perspective, we learn new things about uh, time and space, new wonders of time and space. If there is a sort of entity or a god or whatever you want to call it, uh, or uh, the universe as a force, um, do you think it in, it would have intended or that we should use these substances? Is it like a form of cheating? You get like a sneak preview or you get... Uh, extra help compared to others maybe we should uh, so call so if you say maybe we should win this game without help and now we're cheating a bit uh, what do you think about that well that's was an argument often made when psychedelics began to open up in the 60s and 70s some theologians uh, accused psychedelics of getting trying to get spirituality on the cheap. They talked about uh, a chemical mysticism, which was a, a sort of a pseudo mysticism. Uh, Houston Smith came along and offered a different position. He said that the experiences that opened under psychedelics had the same qualities and characteristics of mystical experiences that opened with meditation, but he questioned whether they had the same staying power. As he, you could say his position was, a mystical experience does not a mystic make. So to me, there are simply different methods of exploring the deep structure of consciousness. Some methods are slower, kind of a slow bake, other methods are fast bake. I don't think uh, psychedelics represent a, a cheap form of spirituality. I think actually, if you, here we have to be careful. We can't simply talk about psychedelics in general. It's always psychedelics and how you use them. Uh, you can use them in a trivial way, but you can also use them in a deeply spiritual way, in a deeply responsible way. So if you use psychedelics, in a deeply spiritual way, in a meditative, deeply internalized way, not only is it not a, a false spirituality or a cheap spirituality or an easy spirituality, I think it's actually a difficult spiritual path. It accelerates the spiritual process and in a way that can be very, very demanding. Um, the processes of purification that one goes through, as you know from ayahuasca, those processes are, are very, very intense, physically, psychologically. And I think they are, if you look at, if you study mystics, you see them going through, you know, mystics by which I mean uh, contemplative, meditative mystics. They go through a similar process, but in a, in a different format. But here's the thing. There are over 300 naturally occurring psychedelic substances that we've identified in nature. 
So it certainly seems like nature wants human beings to enter into non-ordinary states of consciousness with the very substances that it's grown. So I, I don't. I think when we interpret these substances to say that they are cheat or that we shouldn't do them or we should do it all on our own, I think those are tend to be kind of heavy-handed cultural projections. I find it ironic that all the millions and millions of people who recreationally many times a day smoke smoke uh, joints but they never realized that if they would just gather all that cannabis together and eat it they would have a deep mystical experience. Yeah, there there are many ways to open your mind to deeper levels. I mean there's the practice of silence, just absolute silence, you know, turn, learning to turn off the verbal mind, the practice of meditation, the practice of trance dancing, uh, holotropic breathwork, uh, Sandgroff's holotropic breathwork, breathing deeply, what the Hindu tradition would call pranayama breathing, many, many different ways, and, and psychedelic substances are, are also there. If you look at the early tankas from Nepal, there is evidence that uh, they used mushrooms. The mushrooms appear in significant ways in the early tankas. So even a tradition which has a very cautious approach, even a potentially negative approach to psychedelics, it's part of their own historical lineage, it appears to be. Might be hard to say, but is there a message, a general message that you felt you received doing all these sessions with LSD that you were provided like some uh, wisdom about existence or life or or maybe it always gets like a personal message for you. Um, I'm not sure what experience you had. Well, certainly personal messages uh, for how to handle my own life, but much larger messages. It's the larger ones. As a philosopher, I'm interested more in the larger ones. Uh, I'll tell you, once a reporter asked me this question, uh, she asked me, what was the most important lesson that I learned from my psychedelic experiences? And I found it impossible to identify one. So what I did was to simply give her a list of some of the lessons which I had received in my psychedelic sessions, and I invited her to take a pick. Um, I can give you some some pieces of that list uh, that I gave her, just representative samples. So here's some. That the universe is the manifest body of a divine being of unimaginable intelligence, compassion, clarity, and power. That we are aspects of this being, never separated from it for a moment. That we are growing ever more aware of this connection. That physical reality emerges out of light and returns to light continuously that light is our essential nature and our destiny, that all of life moves as one, that reincarnation is true, that there is a deep logic and significance to the circumstances of our lives, that everything we do as individuals contributes to the evolution of the whole, and that our awareness continues in an ocean of time and a sea of bliss when we die, that we are loved beyond measure, and perhaps very importantly for understanding where we are in history, that humanity is driving toward an evolutionary breakthrough 
that will change us and life on this planet at the very deepest level. We're coming, I think, into a turning point of history. So if somebody wants to read your book, what uh, what can you tell a bit about what the book is? We talked a bit about it, but uh, we haven't really, you haven't really explained exactly what the book is about. Well, uh, this book, this is my fourth book, and this book is the book in which I basically tell the story of my own psychedelic journey, but I've dropped out a lot of experiences that have to do just with me personally, like the personal healings, personal insights, things like that. I dropped those to the side, and I really focused on the deepest experiences in which a deeper cosmological trajectory emerges. So what I do in this book, in LSD in the Mind of the Universe, is there is a, an introductory chapter where I talk about the method, and then I basically just go through the sessions and I break them down. Every chapter deals with a specific series of sessions, and then I, I compress them, and I also uh, reproduce my session notes in the chapters. So I just take it stage by stage, going from one stage of the journey to another stage to another stage going all the way through all 20 years and the last chapter is called uh, coming off the mountain which is the, what's happened when i stopped my sessions in 1999 the process of coming away coming down from the mountain of of psychedelic awareness so it's it's very straightforward I, i've really tried to make it as non-academic as possible I've tried to take a different voice. It's more of a psychedelic memoir, but it's a psychedelic memoir from a philosopher, you know, so it's always going to have a, that bit of an edge. But I've tried to do it while I was doing this work. I tried to collect these experiences as systematically and rigorously as I could. And um, I've spent years trying to identify the overlapping themes and the progressions and the turning points in this long journey. So I just basically lay the journey out as clearly and honestly as I can. So where can people get the book? And do you have a, also your own website? Uh, I will have a website. It's in the process now. I've been behind time getting it done. Uh, the website will be chrisbeish.com. The book is available will be available on november 26 from amazon in the united states i'm told that it will be available in england uh amazon in england on january 5th uh, excuse me january 2nd uh, there there are translations that are beginning that are in the works i hope it will be translated into the northern european languages Uh, some of my earlier books have been translated, uh, one in Danish and one in German, uh, the Life Cycles book on reincarnation. I hope this one will be too. Uh, but right now, I guess the closest would be either Amazon in the United States or Amazon in England. Great. Well, thank you a lot for taking the time to talk to me. Very pleased to. Well, there's also going to be an audio book. Uh, I just finished recording it. And uh, that will also be released soon. And that might be easier to get because it'll probably be digital. I'm not sure how it will be marketed, but it should be available in digital form. It's a pleasure to speak with you, Alex, and a, a real pleasure to discuss these very important topics with you. If you enjoy the podcast, you're welcome to leave a review on iTunes. 
Here's one review I got. One of the most intuitive interviews I have ever heard. First things first, the podcast has a dual format. It is mostly split between interview episodes and interesting lectures that Alex has found. The lectures are usually cut to size and fit a certain theme. A lot of digging seems to be involved with these lectures and they are appreciated. But interviews is where Alex really shines. It's actually really bizarre. I've been listening to a lot of interview podcasts. Alex not only always asks the right question. Literally, pick any interview. The guest will almost always say, great question, or I was about to get into that. But Alex has the most uncanny ability to know when to stop the interview. Underrated skill. But many podcasters struggle with sensing when the guest is ready to wrap up or let the guest ramble on past their welcome. Alex always very smoothly segues the interview out perfectly and naturally. This is all technicals, but trust me, the content speaks for itself. Freedom is in the mind. STK162. I think that's one of the longest reviews I've received and very detailed. And thank you for the kind words. I appreciate them. To close this episode, I want to play a song by Audible484, which is a song called LSD, written according to the artist whilst he was coming down from his own LSD trip. I hope to see you all here next week, and as Terence McKenna used to say, take it easy, but take it. Freedom is in the mind. You've been living clean for three years now, and it's done you a world of good, has it not? Look, I know I've had my trouble with drugs in the past, but I'm addicted to coke, weed, booze, lewds, and speed, not LSD. Nobody gets addicted to LSD. Lysergic acid, deathful of something. Feel a little plastic and see a little fucking weird. My thoughts are all smeared across my skull. I got a pack of bowl. Maybe if I'm blown, I'll feel more. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa, low. <laughs> Down into hole I go And where I end up only one body knows It's closed, it's closed, the show no longer goes It's paused, the claws, the plot, the jaws The wrong song song, so I show bong Chong wong dong wrong, tiki shlong Hold on, wait, shh, shh, shh shit, I'm wrong, wait, shut up, stop the song Shit, wait, be quiet, wait, wait, wait Stay calm, wait, wait, hey <laughs> Alright, that's better. Yeah, look. The sleeves of my sweater. I love the weather. The way the world is put together. Feels like as a feather. I understand never. Treasure is earth. Barely entering birth. A new benevolent urge to somehow encourage everybody in the world. Oh, damn, I see a girl I admire from afar. Then I gaze up at the stars and I'm struck. Fuck, now I'm stuck. Fuck. <laughs> Fuck. How'd I end up? Wait, shut the fuck. Wait, huh? Oh yeah, I'm frying. I'm not dying, I'm lying. <laughs> to my damn self. Laying on the ground, listening to the sound, saying how. Colors and things I never felt. Who's that? Who's me? How's we? It's the LSD. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, that's right. I took the tab like, like, like an hour or three. Fucked up. Almost drunk in the street. Laughing and playing, running and planting a tree. And I'm happy to be. 
wherever I'm at Even if I'm giggling alone on the mat I'm a sick individual, but it's just so incredible How the physical's edible and the mental is handful I'm a beast, no wait, I'm just a sheep It ain't a tool, it'll be a fool You're just another on the creep The creep <laughs> Hardy hard, now the mountaintop's far But I like the car on top of a star R and R Nia movie Look at me I'm Judy Hey Say hey hey to me Like the beetle Get in the beetle Stance and dance And prance around Singing a tune Look at the candy Look at, look at the candy It tastes like the moon Oh shoot Who's that A funny looking man In a funny blue hat I'm a funny blue cat That's what I believe Now I see What I'll never achieve Now I don't grieve I can see My eyes are free Free as bees Sucking honey from the tree of life The knife is cut The vortex The patterns in me Now I'm me I'm as me As me Can be LSD if you promise it'll just be this one time, 